From pitch side to print to the press box above Providence Park. It's Jamie Goldberg from the Oregonian and Richard Farley from the Portland Timbers and Thorns. This is Soccer Made in Portland. On the scene, all the time. Jamie Goldberg, take it over. I, like I should hold the microphone up here, though. Like, I don't know what to do with this. Now, well, yeah. Welcome to uh, this is our second attempt at live recording uh, Soccer Made in Portland here at Civic Tap Room. Obviously, uh, this is a little bit different. Um, we recorded more about Timbers and Thorns earlier today, but this is all about talking to John, talking about what it was like to be in Russia, being the voice of uh, the World Cup for, for fans here in America. And so. Let's switch to this one. Okay. So I I wanted to start just by um, asking you, John. Uh, now that you've come back, you've had a, a little bit of time, not much, to regroup from this experience. I, I mean, have you had time to really reflect uh, about what this what this meant for you? In, in bits and pieces, yeah. I mean, I think. Listen, this is something that my first memory is the 94 World Cup because I was a little bit too young for 90, and, and so every four years is sort of this mile mile marker. I think for all of us to see how our fandom has grown, how soccer has grown. I remember in 2002, I would be up at, because the, the late game would kick off at 4.30 a.m. on the West Coast, and I'd be up and watching that, and then I was in my junior year of high school, I'd go to school, and there was nobody that was paying any attention to it, and I felt like I was the only person in the world watching this World Cup, and it was really frustrating. And then in 2006, as the U.S. is about to kick off against Czech Republic, both of the bars on the edge of campus of the University of Oregon are like overflowing, and I'm stunned. And in 2010, we hosted a bunch of viewing parties around the city. And, and if people remember uh, Piner Courthouse Square, we hosted a big party for the final. It was packed. And I was like, oh, my God, this is crazy. And in 2014, I was working for NBC. Um, and so I wasn't involved in the World Cup, but I was doing radio interviews in, like, Statesville, North Carolina, because everyone I felt was really into it. And so you've had these mile markers come up. So for me to be at a World Cup and to be enjoying this, um, it was surreal. It's still sort of surreal. I was looking back tonight before I came down, like at my notes and the tickets, because you get a ticket for every game because they assign you a seat in the stadium, technically. And all these things, and it still feels surreal because, yeah, you come home and you go on with your life, and I'm back with my wife and my kids, all these things. But you have these reminders of, I actually got to do that. This thing I dreamed about doing, I actually got to do it. I may never do it again. You don't know. Um, and, and those moments, less so the games, more so like being in the city of Samara, which was a closed city in the Soviet days. It was the, the center of their aerospace, um, like the rockets they sent to the moon, but also their missile defense. So it was closed off to other Russians. It was not on the maps. The Soviet cartographers took it off the maps because it was so strategically important. And now I'm surrounded by 30,000 Mexican fans to my right and 30,000 Brazilian fans to my left watching Mexico play Brazil as 100 million people watch around the world. And it's very surreal to be in those moments um, particularly in Russia, particularly now, and, and the way that it felt like the whole world had descended upon it, and I got to play this little part and enjoy it. So those are the things I think that I take away that I will always have with me, those little slap, snapshots of, like, this is a really unique moment in, in time, in sports, in politics, whatever, that we're all sort of here having this wild party in Russia, and then the day after, the whole country clears out, and it's, like, back to normal for them and back to normal for us. So that's my long-winded summation of, of sort of how I'm still, I think, processing that I got to do what I got to do. Are there stories that you feel like coming up? Yes, but I can't you... tell most of them. <laughs> well, what can you tell us? I want to hear story time with John Strong. A, a lot of it is, so we had a running joke that Stu Holden's Instagram feed was our passive-aggressive way of complaining to our bosses about the travel. Um, <laughs> but it was amazing. I mean, I called three of those games without having slept at all the night before because you would, it would be a 9 p.m. kickoff, and the game would finish. You'd be on a 2 a.m. flight. So you just go to the airport, and you'd connect through Moscow. We spent more than 24 hours on layovers in Moscow's three different airports. So anything you want to know about Russian airlines or airports, let me know. Um, and we get, and maybe you sort of pass out on the airplane for a bit. Maybe you nap at the hotel, and you go on to the next game, and you go do it. Like, those are the types of things that were quite amazing um, to get to experience. And, and yeah, those times when you're so tired, like Poland, Columbia, second half, my eyes couldn't really focus. I was so tired. I was having a hard time. And you're a mile away from the field at these games. You're, you're third from the top row of the stadium. So second half, Poland, Columbia. If you watch it back, I don't really identify too many players because I can't really see. I'm just like, hey, Columbia's up 3-0, all right. 
Um, so though that was kind of fun. Um, again, those, those moments where you're sort of walking around, we had a fun one, some of these mob scenes outside the stadiums, um, the Russia, Croatia quarterfinal, it was getting a little bit rowdy afterwards. I mean, the Russians were sort of the, the, the sort of muscular nationalism that exists in Russia and really came out during those world cup. Um, and, and then Croatia beats them in penalty. So it was a little bit, had it not been in Sochi, which is basically Vegas crossed with South Beach, I think it could have turned sideways a little bit. But it was a little bit tense, and we had two ex-Russian military like security guys with us. And so they were super on edge. And they were sort of navigating through the crowd, trying to get to the next place. And all of a sudden, a woman comes running up to Stu. Stu Holden, Stu Holden! And Alex, our one guy, like steps in between, and he's like, okay, now it's going down. It was Stu's mom. And she was just there like to hug him. But he was like, totally thought that, you know... This is when the riot starts. Um, you know, and we, would, we, we were at arm's length from Moscow, but we'd come into Moscow and be around, you know, our studio crew, and they would be living this weird Groundhog's Day existence of every day showing up, going to the studio, doing this thing. And, and then they would sort of ask us, like, where have you been? What cities have you been? Like, like trying to understand our existence at the same time. Um, those types of things were fun, because I think you also end up inevitably, you're in a bubble. I'm not seeing much of the reaction here. Somebody had to deliver it. Um, we're not really seeing much of the conversation here, and yet you will call a game and you'll sort of step away from it. Like Brazil-Belgium was one where we sort of just sat there in the van afterwards like, man, that was really cool. That was a really fun game. And, and so those little moments, Stu and I especially, um, and we've become such good friends. Uh, Eric, who's my friend since middle school, is my stats and research assistant. He comes with me every summer in these tournaments. My producer, Shaw, I've had since 2012. It was just the four of us basically traveling and just those moments where you sit there. And listen, when you work in American soccer, you're used to sort of slogging some unglamorous things. I've done you know, some unglamorous games um, in these different scenarios, an example of which on the TV right now. Um, and, and so to be in this moment where it's like, you know, uh, yeah, the people that are listening to this afterwards be like, what's he talking about? Um, to be in this moment where it's like, okay, this is, you've hit the big time, and, and we're sort of looking around just like, this is so cool. And, and even during national anthems, I would, I would get her and, and my kids on FaceTime and just show my son the stadium. And we'd sort of look at each other like, man, this is really cool that we're here. So I think those are the types of things you soak in because, again, you don't, you, you can't assume you're ever going to get to do it again. Um, it's never going to be quite like that. Qatar will be an entirely different experience, assuming it's in Qatar, um, than Russia was. You know, the white whale for all of us now is 2026 in the U.S. But, but those little moments, like I say, where you're just at the intersection of all these different things. Okay, this is a unique moment in all of our lives. And let's really soak it in and enjoy it while also not getting so caught up in it that, you know, I space out for five minutes and the game's going on. I haven't called anything, you know. <laughs> So first, if anybody does have any questions, you don't want to come up here, feel free to just stand up, this ask your questions. We'll repeat it for podcast sake. You don't have to come all the way up here and use the mic. It's only a six-foot cord. Um, but Comrade Strong, Privyet, welcome back to country. Um, I want to know how should we know... Stu, by the way, any Russian swear word that exists, Stu Holden knows. Of course. And he learned some last year, the Confederations Cup. He learned better ones this year. And we, he would do that. It, he reminded me, and I said, of my four-year-old son, who will just insert the word diapers into a sentence and laugh. That's what Stu would do. And so we would be sitting in a van driving, and you'd have a, a driver who doesn't speak any English. He just, and Stu would just blurt out a string of swear words, and the driver's like giggling to himself as he's driving down the highway. So that was also sort of part of our experience. No, you're giving people a good insight into men's national team culture. That is the perfect... Especially with Stu Holden involved. Stu, yes. does, Stu does a great Bob Bradley impression. And he tells the story of the final day of the 2010 World Cup, and they're leaving South Africa, and they had stayed at this sort of resort-slash-military compound in South Africa, and all of the people that work at the hotel have, have like, a, a human tunnel they formed between the entrance of the hotel and the bus. And they're sort of applauding as the players politely come through. Well, the stew does laps back and forth, giving high-fives to people. And he gets on the bus, and I won't do Stu's impression of Bob, but basically Bob says, Stu, I don't understand you at all but I get a little bit of why you're important to this team so that is sort of Stu Holden in a nutshell of what a goofball he is but incredibly vital to everything we do well it's pretty clear that Stu Holden is a compromised Russian agent at this point so I wanted to ask you're back in our country how can we but trust they're listening you? how can we trust but you, they're John? listening yeah uh, are you mic'd up right now how 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 tall is Vladimir Putin uh we well because it was that was the you know 
try to, the, the, the danger is this, this versions of the story I would like to tell versus the versions of the story that this is going to be going out to the world that I'm sort of trying to decide. You're pretty much our next president at this what, point. What I will say is this, that they're, you know, so one of the differences between calling a World Cup game and calling an MLS game, we don't at Fox control the pictures. The, the, the camera shots you see, the replays, all that stuff, that's a world feed. That goes to everyone in the world. You're not allowed to touch it. Um, and so there are things that will pop up there you wouldn't necessarily put on by our choice. You know, shots of women in the stands, weird cutaways to random people in the VIP box. And there were times, like, they're cutting to the politicians and things like that. And it's like, I don't... I, it's just because... Anything you do say, you're leaving out a bunch of other stuff. And, and it's like, I would rather just ignore it and leave it alone, except that there would also be, you know, other people involved in the conversation at HQ who are like, you ha-. so we reached a compromise where, okay, next time these dudes come up, this was in the final, you have to acknowledge who they are. I'm like, all right, fine. So they come up, and it's, and it's Macron, and it's Putin, and it's... Um, who would oh um who was the other one that was there there was a third person who was there oh it was Infantino so Stu's though finishing his point and by the time Stu finishes his point I'm going to launch into my now like saying and then Mbappe scores and I'm like well okay that's not my problem then I can't control that I tried I tried but yeah, those times where it's like they cut away and, and you read the story, you know, and, and there were criticisms of Croatia's prime minister and, and the way, not necessarily she, but the way previous Croatian politicians have used the national team sort of for their own propaganda purposes. And, and there's all these more complicated things. And yet, do I really want to dive into, you know, a brief summation of Croatian political history in the 80th minute of the quarterfinal with Russia? You know, so you're, you're sort of finding, whereas if I just stay silent and pretend like it's not happening, it makes it a little bit easier. I don't know that you actually had a question you were going to ask or what, but I just sort of went I off I just wanted to accuse you of being a double agent. That's fine. That's, That's about fine. It. I get that. Um, Jamie's about to ask another question. If you guys have questions while she's asking that, just kind of raise your hand a little bit and then I'll, I'll throw it to you afterwards. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, wh- over here first. Uh, <laughs> You can come get the mic. You can yell. I've got a real, really important question. Um, so, wait, what's your name? My name is Jarrett. Hello. Okay. Are you a double agent? Uh, I am. Okay. Oh, oh shoot. Is that how you normally do these podcasts? By the way, is that <laughs> like you like you're sussing out the threats to our country or something? Or? Ah, sorry, my bad. Um, anyway, uh, this is probably the most important question I can ask you. Uh, I'm really excited know. now. I know. I know. I know. You've uh, been traveling a lot. You've been to multiple Russian cities probably eaten a lot of their food uh kachka how do you compare kachka with the russian food you actually ate in russia like i, I said I've... important questions yeah yeah, yeah. no I, we so wait what is kachka you, don't you need to eat there <laughs> so i the the one thing I, so we were there last year for confederations cup and uh, Maria Kamonnaya, who works for it's called Match TV. It's sort of their cable sports channel in Russia. So she would she was working for us these two tournaments. So the first like week we're in Russia, we're eating great, but we like we went to a steakhouse, which was like where the it was like Epcot Center Steakhouse in St. Petersburg, where the wait staff gets up and like sings and dances in between. Um, we went to an amazing Italian place. We went to a Chinese place. All these other things, and I'm like Maria, I want to eat Russian food. She's like, No, you don't. I'm like, No, I, I want I can get Italian anywhere. Like I would like to eat. Russian food. Like, no, you don't. She was like, what you want is you want Georgian food. And that was what we discovered is, you know, when the Russians want to eat something that's sort of their own, the, the cuisine from the Republic of Georgia is, is incredible. So that was the place that we, and, and, and the type of food that we searched out. So now our goal is to find good Georgian restaurants on the MLS circuit. So that's sort of our thing that um, we're really big on, on eat. We don't go to big fancy steakhouses. We want to go to really interesting places to eat. So that's our goal now is, uh, you know, can we find really good Georgian restaurants? But yeah, the Russians are sort of, we went to the Russian equivalent of Applebee's one night in Moscow because we were tired and couldn't be bothered. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, and I think it delves into like the, the way that they view their own history and their own past and some of those things and the way I think that the younger generation wants to just break entirely from the Soviet days and, and be sort of all these other things. And, but it is sort of a strange thing that it's like, yeah, don't eat Russian food. I'm like, you're Russian. What do you mean? You know, so. <laughs> Didn't answer your question at all, but that was my, that was my food-related anecdote to share. Yeah, 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 that's fine. Come on down, Richard, and ask your question. So I'm, I'm Richard. My question, not related to Russia, 
But uh, I assume that Fox is going to do the Women's World Cup in France. Of course, next yeah. Year, and you'll be there, I presume. We have, we have the rights through, I think it's three women's tournaments and three men's tournaments. So through 2026, I think, yeah. Can you give us any insight into why Fox is not doing NWSL or if Fox might do NWSL or how that all went? No, I think it's a fair question. Um, you know, because we, we didn't, the, was this the second or the third year they did the Tournament of Nations? I think it was the second year. Second year they did it, yes. So we did it this year. ESPN did it last year. Um, we did NWSL the first season, and then it was, I think it was more to do that Lifetime came in with a really, you know, so it's, it, it's a push-pull. I mean, you know, and I've asked the question as well. Like, we have the, the men's and the women's rights to the UEFA Champions League are sold separately. So it's not like because we have, and we had, we don't have them anymore. The men's UEFA Champions League rights, like we have the women's tournament, because you know, when we were in Cardiff last year, I'm like, it'd be great to do the women's, you know, I went to the women's final in um, London as well. So those are very fair questions. Um, I, I don't have the answers to them necessarily, but, you know, it, it is something that's absolutely, I, I look at it as, I can dive off into a 30-minute conversation here about NWSL women's soccer. Um, how, how do we get to a point, you know, for as much as we've had to fight just to get MLS to this platform, what's it going to take to just get NWSL to this platform too? Because it was, you know, you and I were to talk before the tournament. Like, it was fun. I wore my Portland Thorns hat, and I had, like, a Thorns workout shirt that I had with me the whole time, and you're sort of spreading that gospel as well. But, you know, it is... And, and they're, like, they're, they're legitimately maybe not going to have video assistant referee at the Women's World Cup which I've been given an explanation that FIFA's sort of argument for why, and it's inexplicable to me. But one of the things that part of, part of the argument is apparently that the, they feel that because there are no women's referees that have experience working with VAR, that it would be too difficult and time and money consumed. Like this is legitimately a thing. Like, like Jill Ellis brought this yeah, up this when she was on our set. This a comedy podcast all of a sudden. Where it's like, guys, we th- really three years ago in Canada with the turf thing, like we're going to pick it up. So, so it, it also, there are a lot of these things too. That you, when you go to Europe, when you go to these events where the, the pervasive, like ironed in sort of soul crushing sexism that, that absolutely exists everywhere you look around the sport and certainly in Europe, is, is jarring then to come back to a city here where we have 18,000 a game for the Thorns and it's no big deal. So those types of things, again, we could delve off all sideways here. I don't, you know, but, but yeah, absolutely. Those are, well, trust me, there's going to be a lot of stuff before this next Women's World Cup that's going to come out in that regard, yeah. Go ahead, uh, go ahead and give your name first yeah. also. My name is Danny. Um, I actually have two questions for you. So the first one is a little bit simpler. Just from a soccer culture perspective, did you have any countries or nations that really stood out to you in a positive way with their with their soccer culture, and any that stood out in a real yeah. negative way in their, with their culture? <laughs> and then the second question is, uh, as an American in Russia, with the political nature that's going on right now, did you have any sort of problems with that, or did anyone experience? Any no, I'll answer the second part first. In general, no one. I mean, this is I think generally true. Like we we have politics all around us now because like cable news, but in general, like go back ten years, no one else wants to talk about that stuff. That was the me- basically in Russia, no one wanted to talk about it, and, and it never really came up. And if anything, there's a fascination that Russians have. I mean, we were at a restaurant the night before the final, which perfect Portland aesthetic to this restaurant. Uh, you could have you could have airlifted it out of this neighborhood in Moscow, and it would have fit in fine here. And all the music is like early Elvis and Johnny Cash and the Beach Boys. Like, American pop music is everywhere. Russia Channel 1, this is their, like, primary state-owned TV channel, which was airing the Russia games and, and some other of these World Cup games. They were advertising throughout the World Cup. They were doing a four-day marathon of the Jason Bourne series around, like, starting the 1st of July. And it's like, but the Russians are the bad guy in the one. But okay. So, so... The, there is a great, there's a fascination with America. There's an appreciation of America, American pop culture, whatever else sort of soft power stuff I'm not going to get into here. American pop culture is still king, unquestionably. And that was sort of interesting to see that part of it. Um, the other part of it, so soccer cultures, the, the ones that stood out in, in sort of the roughest way to, to, quickest way to say it was Latin America. 
Mexican fans everywhere, Brazilian fans everywhere, Peruvian fans everywhere, Colombians everywhere to the point that we damn near missed our flight after the Poland Colombia game because the airport was flooded. Um, Brazilians selling national team shirts out of a duffel bag. I'm sure they were totally legit at the airport in Moscow the morning of the Brazil Switzerland game. That stood out. I mean, that was incredible. And this is on the other side of the globe. And some of it was stories of people that had worked odd jobs and, like, driven their way over a period of two years to the World Cup. Others, it was just, you know, we, we got into an elevator in Kazan, um, and a guy in a Columbia shirt is talking, you know, to his family. And he gets in the elevator, turns around, sees Stu, and starts speaking to Stu in perfectly unaccented English. He's like, yeah, I'm from Santa Monica. My family's Colombian, though, so we come to the World Cup. So that stood out more than anything else. The Europeans were sort of slower to show up. I think the difference is that for them, they were a lot of them wait. Like the English fans were waiting to see, the French fans were waiting to see, and they could just pop over for the weekend. Um, whereas, again, the, the the Latin American countries, for lack of a better way to phrase it, they were there in numbers. And if anything, it dissipated some in the knockout round because I think everyone's basically put all their money and time, energy, and effort into the group stage because you know that in December and you're there. And then it was like, well, shoot, sweetie, we just made the round of 16. Do we have any more vacation time we can make this work? So that really stood out. And the atmospheres in, in those games that we did, like I said, the second half poll in Colombia, when the Colombians were up 3-0, they were going ballistic. That was incredible. They were Peru- we didn't do a Peru game. We saw Peruvians everywhere. Um, the, the Brazilians that were there, like I said, the Mexican fans that were everywhere, they took over Moscow the day of the, the game with Germany. That type of stuff was really cool. And then, and then seeing, we saw a little bit last year, you know, the Russians are funny. They have a, a, a really hardcore cynicism about their team. And it, it popped through a little bit of the Confederations Cup last year, but they basically spent the ensuing 11 months just so sour on their team. And, and there's, I told this story during the Russia-Croatia quarterfinal. On this Russia Channel 1, there's a nightly... I mean, it's, it's a knockoff of Jimmy Fallon or Jimmy Kimmel. The guy looks like Jimmy Kimmel. It's an American late-night talk show. And this dude grew a mustache mocking Stanislav Trochesov, the Russian manager, a month before. He was, like, making fun of the guy, like, in sort of this mock support. And then all of a sudden, they destroy Saudi Arabia. And then Salah was sort of at half's pace because of a shoulder injury, and they beat Egypt. We, we were crawling through a sea of humanity on the streets of St. Petersburg trying to get back to our hotel after that win over Egypt. And the entire country went ballistic about this. And, and so now you're seeing people wearing these mustaches and they're playing music videos on Russia Channel One with like all these entertainers like wearing fake mustaches. And we were in Samara, again, this weird closed city and they beat Spain the night before we were doing Brazil, Mexico. They beat Spain in the shootout in the round of 16. Seems the streets are flooded with people that have come out. And, and it's this very strange thing of where they are very honest that they know their team isn't very good, but they were loving so much and, and similarities you perhaps could draw with how we look at our national soccer team. Because is soccer really the most popular sport in Russia? Is it much more about foreign soccer than their own domestic league? Those types of things. But the way the country all came around, it was actually pretty interesting to see. And there's a street behind our hotel, um, uh, uh, Nikolskaya Street, I think. It, I'm badly mispronouncing it. It's it's been around forever. It's basically a pedestrian-only street. It's got shops. It's got restaurants. Um, part of the old market that was in Moscow many, many, many years ago. And every single night, it would turn into a sea of people to the point that the Russians sort of panicked, and they had to set up security checkpoints at either side and close off certain entrances to the street because there were so many people, and they were worried about you know terrorist attack or something like that. But you could be at three in the morning. I would I could open the windows to my hotel room and hear chants of Rossiya, Rossiya, and you hear the Argentinian fans singing, and you hear the Mexican fans singing, the Croatian fans singing. And it was like this weird little melting pot of the world. So those are the types of things where, you know, given the opportunity to go to a World Cup, I, I cannot advise more that you go because you do. You you get the entire world and its soccer culture distilled into one small place and it's really quite incredible to see that in person spencer spencer Raymond, everybody who took over for me as the voice of the lake oswego lakers when we were in high school <laughs> and then had an illustrious radio career yeah. in portland which is now finished but um john you and me were talking about pool video uh earlier when you walked in What's some of the magic of TV that someone watching at home may have no idea about? And how does calling games in an international setting of the World Cup differ from like the game you did Saturday yeah. on... Very, 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 very different. Calling, calling a game in a World Cup couldn't be more different from calling an MLS game. So again, that's part of the difference. When we do an MLS game, I might have a great story on 
Diego Valeri. And so I'll say to my producer and director, next chance we get, can we get a shot of, of Valeri? So on a gold kick, close-up shot of Valeri, and I can launch into the story. We don't control the picture, so I can't necessarily dive. I, I, for three games, sat on this really cool stuff about Luka Modric and his, his life and his background, and he was a war refugee as a child, and his grandfather was, was sort of murdered by a kill squad when the War of Independence was breaking out. He was named after his grandfather, all this kind of stuff. I couldn't get it in because at no point are they really going to a shot of Luka Modric in a moment that works for me to dive into this story. So that's sort of a challenge. The other thing of it is your view at home during the World Cup on your couch in front of your HDTV was infinitely better than my view in any of these stadiums. As I said, we're, they basically, because you've got, I think there were 180 different individual broadcasters at the final radio and TV combined from around the world. And so they take a big section of the stands and they build desks in. And so we are... I'm sort of jammed in shoulder to shoulder. I've got a small workspace about this far in front of me. I got Eric here. I got Stu here. I got, I mean, it's, it's, we've got maybe Chilean television behind us, Japanese TV in front of us. I mean, you're all sort of jammed in, but we're three rows from the top of the stadium. So there are times in, in Kazan, especially like the players are ants to us. So if you sit there, like, how can you misidentify? It's like, well, you tell, come here and tell me how easy you can see this. So that type of stuff is different. You know, there's no access to players. There's no access to coaches. We were able to use our, our connections we have. We got Roberto Martinez on the phone for 10 minutes the night before Belgium semifinal. We got Andre Kramaric to basically email us back responses to some questions before the final. But outside of that, you're passengers in the whole thing. We did have a really good source within uh, the Mexican locker room, basically. So we, we were getting some good stuff from them. But outside of that, you parachute in, haven't slept, fourth game in five days and it's like okay egypt uh here's where this is your lineup you know and you just sort of go but and it's fun but it is it, it's not quite the same as when we do an mls game where you can really feel like you're part of it you get time with the coaches and players you have a much better view you can control those pictures um it is a different experience in that regard. It's harder in some ways, too, because, you know, if, if the lineups are late and coming out and you're about to go on camera and you need to respond, you know, we're like, we're sort of looking over our shoulder at the monitor, like, are they going to put the lineups out? So those types of things are, are definitely very, very different than what we get to do here. But it's fun. It's good. So Jamie has a bunch of questions that we're going to get through throughout the night, and she'll go. He has one more, one now, too. But um, then we'll go here next. Oh, okay. got to ask one. And anybody else, just signal, signal me now, and I'll get you in the queue. So this is Jared again. Hello. Uh, just wondering, due to the fact that, like, obviously there's a major. Uh, this is an actual soccer question, by the way. Um, <laughs> due to the difference of the like the broadcast and like what you do, and you've obviously worked obviously a World Cup, which is incredible, and you've done a lot of MLS stuff, but you also do a lot of TV work as well. Um, I'm sure a lot of people, myself included, would absolutely be interested in knowing about the difference between just in general, not just a, a World Cup broadcast with an MLS broadcast, but maybe what you do for some of the other uh, major games as well, um, and kind of what your preparation and your, um, you know, just kind of how it all works from like maybe when you're in person in an MLS game yeah. to maybe doing something. Well, and that's the thing. So, so, so the prep is very different in that regard because I, I will go on a lot deeper dive in MLS. There's a lot more information you have access to. You get direct access to players and coaches. Uh, I feel much more responsibility to, to, to get into stories and really let you know who these players are. It's also, and, and again, this, this sort of treads on an electric third rail as we discuss MLS compared to other leagues, the pace of a lot of MLS games is slightly slower. There's more time to get this stuff in. Now, this is changing. I've even noticed this spring, MLS games are a little faster pace now. I've noticed that, and so it's harder to jam this stuff in. You also, again, at a World Cup, we called, how many games do we call? 17 games in 31 days. I, I prepared for uh, 19 different teams. So you can't go as deep. You just can't. Uh, you know. And, and even then, I did way more than I should have. I realized halfway through, we're like, here's a bunch of stuff I didn't need to spend this hour on. Um, and, and it's part of the, the challenge for me is to fight against the insecurity that I have absolutely had in the past, that I've been better at in general now, to try to show off how much I know to try to sit there and, and be like, yes, I might be young, I might be an American, but boy, don't I know a lot about Croatia, you know, you chuckleheads on the internet. Um, and, and the willingness to 
not feel like I have to do as much because it, otherwise I got that happened last year. Confederations cup, we parachuted into Germany, Cameroon, which was like the seventh game in 10 days. And, and I'd done all this Cameroon notes and it's just, it's all blurred in my brain. And I'm like trying to get this. I'm like, it's just too much. So that was one of the things I did really well for this world cup was I simplified. I did a lot less and just let the game be the game and just call the game. And, and if I can get in one or two little, little nuggets or anecdotes, great. And if I can't, that's okay. Uh, as my producer Shaw says, you'll never get in trouble for what you don't say. Whereas the more I try to show off how much I know about Real Madrid, inevitably I'm going to stumble over something and that undermines my process as opposed to if I just keep it simple and just call the game in stretches, um, you know, no one's going to... So that was a thing that I learned really well for this tournament is the ability to downshift. Now, in saying that, I'm very excited. I already started last night. My next MLS game is a week from Sunday, Seattle against Dallas. Yes, boo, Seattle, we know. Um, that's, eh. And But I enjoyed, like, last night, I, I put the family to bed, and I went and did, like, an hour and a half in my office, like, deep dive on Dallas. Like, I love that stuff. And really going back through, okay, I haven't seen Dallas since last September, and, and really go, oh, how'd the season end, and the first half of the season, and this and this. Like, I love that stuff. So as much as it's at the World Cup, it's fun to just be jumping around, I, I also miss being able to really dive in deep and feel like I'm to my knees on some of these MLS teams and, and these stories as well. You talked about... Was it a good goal? You reacted behind me here. Okay, what's good? All right. (laughs) (laughs) For everybody on the podcast... It's preseason. ...scored a goal against Barcelona in the International Champions Cup. This is great podcast right now. Yeah, exactly. You're talking about a lot of the differences in calling the World Cup and just the atmosphere of being there. Now coming back, you know, to potentially calling, now getting ready to call MLS games. I mean, what? how do you feel like you may have grown uh, as a broadcaster and learned from, uh, from the experience? I, I think the biggest difference now is it's just it's a li- it's not it's not an arrogance of like I call the World Cup, leave me alone. But it's it is there is a confidence to where. I don't hopefully ever again need to get overly insecure or nervous about you know, I'm still going to have butterflies. I'm, I'm still going to have an edge to me where I try to be as easygoing as possible. I try to be as level-headed as possible. It was something that a couple people in, in Russia um, mentioned to me that they noticed from me is how I really didn't waver too much, too high, too low from any given game. And that's something I've worked on a lot. But I also have an edge to me where I'm not going to be outworked. There's, there's no other broadcaster that can possibly outwork me, outprepare me, any of those things. Like That's something that's always been really important to me. But I also think there's going to be a little of that confidence, whereas two years ago when we did MLS Cup, I was a little bit nervous. It was the first time doing it. It was a big deal for me, and, and I just was a little bit on edge. I wasn't as comfortable. I was calling the World Cup final, and I was like, this is fine. I've done this before. This is cool. Like, like, and so I think I'm going to have that going forward more than anything else. It's just that, you know, okay, I can do this. Like, I don't need to worry about... And a big part of it has been leaving at least my my Twitter handle, leaving it behind, and 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 paying zero attention to what anyone on the internet says about me anymore. Has been a I'm in a glorious like Zen place. Like it's been so wonderful, uh, and it's not contemptuous for the audience. It's just I'm not going to get anything out of people chirping at me on the internet. And so those types of things have helped me just get to a point where I'm going to enjoy myself and have fun and not worry. And if I make a mistake, okay, and I'll try not do it again. Um, as opposed to a couple of years ago where I would wrap myself into a pretzel of anxiety and nerves. I was a rector in Copa America Centenario. I, the U.S.-Columbia game like destroyed my brain. I, I, and, and the whole rest of the tournament, I was a mess. Last year, I was really, by the end of the Gold Cup, I was just mentally gone. It was, it, it was, those things were tough for me. And I worked so hard the first half of this year getting to a place where the World Cup, I was going to not do that again. And I didn't, and it was really cool. And so now I can just go into these things I'm doing. Like, let's just have fun and enjoy it. And if people get upset you can't control that um but we're gonna have that was our big thing we kept saying to ourselves Stu and i and eric and shaw we're gonna enjoy ourselves we're gonna have a good time and hopefully people have a good time with us you know i think uh a lot of us have been really enamored by your meteoric rise from two excellent words in that sentence by the way (laughs) well done thank you being a kid in the timbers army uh watching usl timbers to the point of calling a World Cup final. Um, what sort of advice would you give to the kids at the 
John Strong, American Soccer Commentary Development Academy. Don't take my job. I got. I still got to. <laughs> I still got to put two kids through college here. Like easy. Um, I, I think the biggest thing I always is, is it gets that thing. Listen, there's a million things that are out of your control. Um, what rights your network does or does not own to put on the air whether a boss likes the sound of your voice or not. I, I have seen examples of people incredibly talented and qualified not given an opportunity because someone just didn't like the way their voice sounds. Um, you can't control that type of stuff. What you can control, like what I talked about, is how hard you're willing to work. And how that's the one thing I can control in my broadcast. I've worked on my voice. I've, I took singing lessons a couple of springs ago because my voice was shattered at the end of 2015. I can't listen to the 2015 playoffs anymore. It was a mess. Um, makes me cringe, and I worked on that. But the thing that I can control exactly that is no one's going to be more prepared than me. No one's going to be more ready to, to, to you know, tell the stories, to have the right thing, but also the willingness to not say it. I don't need to fill up something that at NBC they really worked with me a lot on. Don't fill the 90 minutes with stuff. That's, that's great. You got five wonderful stats. Give us one. You know, that type of thing, and, and being, willing to, uh, being willing to pull back on that. Um, and just, you know, when that opportunity comes, you got to bust down the door of it. But you also sort of like finding that Zen place of until it comes, because there are other, inevitably in this business, there are people that really agitate about stuff and, and you know, try too hard to impress, try too hard to get a boss's attention. Um, I have seen an example because uh, I lived it of another broadcaster sort of spreading stuff out about you know you and how well you might get along with others or not other type of like there there can be those types of things it is competitive at the end of the day it's zero sum either i'm calling the game or jp delicammer is but not both so how do you learn to interact with the people around you i think is a really big one and and the the, the broadcasters that last the longest and i bring up jp deliberately because he on a couple of very high-profile uh, occasions has gotten a very, very short end of a very long stick. And one other situation, which is not my story to tell, uh, of where he almost did, and it was something that you could argue might have been the most important thing he's done in his career. And yet he's never wavered from being a good person, being a good teammate, being a good mentor and friend to me, being helpful. Um, that's what I want to be, you know, and, and, and so be a good person, work hard, don't be at work, keep that edge, but also, you know, don't be a jerk, like, because those things will come around back to you. And I've seen other examples of very, very talented broadcasters who were not, did not play well with others, ended up costing them. And that's, again, it's one of those things where I, you know, whatever else, if I can try to get along with people, and if I can avoid the the sort of itchy trigger finger on Twitter, which is easier now because I left it alone. You know, the the you, you can you can shine bright and shine hot and then burn yourself out, or or you can have a long impactful career, and that's what I'm aiming to have. So that's what I've learned so far. But I've also enjoyed the process of every year realizing how little I understand about how to be a good broadcaster. Like I, I'm going to listen back to this last World Cup in 20 years and laugh at how young I sound and how ill-prepared I was and all these things. Like, and, but, I, but I'm enjoying that process a lot as well. And I think it, it also helps the same time as I've become a father as well because it's the same sort of process having kids. Of every year you go along, you realize, wow, I got no clue what I'm doing. And it's sort of fun. And, and, and so I've enjoyed those two sort of parallel paths to, to this whatever sort of a, uh, you know, maturity. or like, I, I keep coming back to the phrase Zen place because I've focused on that so much because I was a mental wreck in prior years and I've been better at that. So those are the types of things I would sort of impress on someone is find that balance of voracious work ethic, but also just like relax, you know? Nothing hard. Hitting. I am listening. I'm just refilling my water, but uh, I am listening. You should. I don't want you to think that me turning my back to you. Is well, I'm not going to give you anything but fluff. Um, because you've said a lot already. Am I over-talking? So Is that what you're so, saying? No, no, okay, no. no. Right. I, I'm saying so you've, you've said a lot already. Sometimes me. Okay. All right. And, and, the, and the, your time there. But just I'll keep it brief. Two quick questions. Um, what was your favorite, like, city or stadium when you were there? Like, something that surprised you or you weren't expecting? And the second would be... 
you know, with the U.S. not being in the World Cup and you not being a double agent. That we know um, of. <laughs> who are you rooting for? Like, who'd you have in your bracket? Um, I deliberately didn't do a bracket for two reasons. Uh, no, three reasons, I will say. Number one, the danger is if I do predictions and they keep becoming wrong, that's damaging my own credibility. Number two, if I'm putting predictions out and then it's like, well, wait, so you're rooting for this one thing to happen and that's something I... I I read a great piece in the spring, it was on The Ringer, um, about how sort of play-by-play announcers are the last newsmen on earth, like what, you know, Peter Jennings and Tom Brokaw sort of used to be, where sort of the voice of God, you're above the fray, that's what a top-level play-by-play announcer sort of can be, and I I like attaining to that. Um, But I've also really embraced the idea of not knowing what's going to happen. MLS has taught me that. Uh, theoretically, I go into an MLS game as the most informed person in the world. I know in, injuries, tactics, lineups, all these things that, about both teams that no one else has that combined information. And I've stopped pretending like I'm going to have any clue what's going to happen in this game. And it's brilliant. And I've enjoyed that process as well. Just have a blank slate completely and just enjoy what's going to happen. Enjoy the ride. I mean, Croatia, Russia. Uh, Belgium to a certain extent. There's some revisionist history you can put in of like, I knew Belgium was going to be good. It's like, okay. Um, those types of things were really fun and, and just enjoying that ride. So I, I've enjoyed that process. Um, and, you know, we root for good games. We root for upsets. We root for surprises. We, we root for situations where, you know, when I come into a, an MLS game, I want the, the teams to either be really good or really bad. I want you either win your next three or lose your next three because I want you to be interesting. If you're on one of those stretches where it's like they've won two and drawn two and lost two and last six, and you're like, okay. <laughs> Same as it ever was. Wasn't that the banner in 2015? Um, as far as stadiums that we enjoyed, um, I can tell you Rostov should not have been hosting World Cup games. Rostov was rough. Um, Spartak Stadium in Moscow was really cool. So it's, it's a bigger version of Red Bull Arena, which is one of the best buildings in MLS, bar none. What was cool, so it was the opposite of the other stadiums. We were all down front. So I was like four rows from the field it was our broadcast position, which is sort of tough. You're almost too close. But that was really fun for the Argentina-Iceland because you feel like you're at arm's length from this sort of crazy thing of like... You know, and the fact that was one of the three games I had not slept the night before, maybe that explains why I would say something as ludicrous as uh, Iceland beats Argentina 1-1. Um, but we had seen so much of it last year. That was the nice thing, having been there the year before, so there weren't surprises. There were a lot of people, it took them a week or two to adjust to Russia. And, and the differences in the stadiums, the differences in the hotels, in the airplanes, all these things, we sort of got into that, and we knew that. And, and that was really helpful so I knew the safest order to coffee shop is a cappuccino because it sounds vaguely the same in Russian. Anything else you try to order, who knows what you're going to get. Um, I, I did, though, there was another place in Sochi. It was basically the, the Russian version of what they thought a, a coffee shop would be in, like, Orange County. And on the menu, it said Hawaiian cappuccino, which for me, if Hawaiian is in, like, take my money now. And she's like, you, you know, she's trying to, like, pantomime one, two, or three. And I'm like, let's do three shots. Like, I'm, let's get the caffeine going. And I end up with three Hawaiian cappuccinos. So that was fun. Um, one of the other things about Russia that we noticed, which is a major pet peeve. I'm a big, I'm a rule follower. I, I'm an orderly line person. The English call it queuing. The Russians are not. And this is true of a lot of cultures around the world. So one of the things on Russian airplanes, when it lands, it stops at the gate. There will be a couple of passengers I'm not generalizing, but do they tend to be women of a certain age? They do. Who will beeline up the aisle because they want to be the first off that plane and they will elbow you out of the way. They don't care. They'll go. So I, and that really bugs me. So one of our overnight flights from Sochi, um, we land in Moscow uh, at, at Shermetyeva and I'm like, I see I'm on the aisle halfway back of the plane. I can see a woman charging up. So I'm like, this is going to be my moment to take a stand. So I immediately get out in the aisle, and I just, like, box her out. And I'm very slowly getting my bag. How, how old was this woman, John? She was in her 60s, probably. She probably had a fake hip. And I'm, <laughs> oh, no, she didn't have a fake hip. She was moving. And I'm very slowly getting my bag, and I'm very slowly putting my headphones back in. And meanwhile, my group with me, they're laughing their asses off because they know I've, I've ranted and raided. And she, I don't look back. And I keep, I keep my earbuds in because I don't want her to talk to me. But she's just like staring daggers at me fiercely. And I just box her the whole way and let everyone, you know, everyone else, you go, you, you know, let's get everyone through, you know. And, 
So that was the stand that I took against these things in Russia that we saw. And then the other, the other fun one was um, the Russian mob scenes in airports. Uh, the, the, the Colombians that flooded the three check-in desks in Kazan was an interesting scene. Uh, we had like, two mob scenes in Kazan, actually. So the morning, the, we did both semifinals. The first was in St. Petersburg, and the next morning we're flying to Moscow. This is our last inter-Russian flight, and we're like, thank goodness for that. Check in, it's just chaos. There's just thousands and thousands of people flying, a lot of them into Moscow for the next day's semifinal. So it's already getting a bit dicey. And we're in this line, this people, and we're next in line to check our bags. And a guy, and you see them all over, the FIFA volunteers, and they have these red sweatshirts they wear. And he sort of sheepishly comes up, I'm sorry, sir, but I, I have these very important FIFA officials who need to cut in front of you to check their bags. And I'm like, no. And he's like, no, sir, I'm sorry, just they have, you know, Long story short, me and, and the, the sort of squirrely of the two security guys who almost attacked Stu Holden's mom, <laughs> we like physically boxed them out because they were trying just to get our bags in. Like it was like us just planning ourselves here. You're not going to cut in this line. So you get to those points too where those types of cultural experiences you have, very different from things you expect. But I, I, I enjoy it. I embrace it. It was fun. It, none of it surprised me because we experienced it last year. But by the end of the tournament, were we ready to come home? Yeah, clearly. We were, we were happy to come back. We were either going to come home or be sent home yeah. at that point. It and we also, the last morning after we left, it was the same sort of thing of like people yelling and shouting and like line cutting and people being more important than others. And it was, yeah. So, Jamie, did you hear what he said about making predictions? <laughs> Chris, come on. He's, he's a, he's a player Chris Reifer, everybody, former host of this podcast, <laughs> who promised me he was not going to ask a question, and now here he is. But so, I have a question. All right. Second time asking a question on this podcast, by the way. I'm, I'm a little bit nervous. Uh, so you've, you've got a lot of things on your resume, as we just found out. Inconveniencer of senior citizens. Uh, had, uh, you know, uh, she had it coming. Okay. Play, yeah. lead, lead play-by-play guy for... I, I did. Fox no, Pirates. I will, as, as an aside to that, uh, because my producer's in front of me, and he's laughing, but I had to commit to the Air- AirPods until I knew I was out of range of her screaming at me in Russian. So I just sent him, I texted him a link to the YouTube of Hulk Hogan's old theme tune, I'm a Real American, like, fight for the rights of... And I'm like, this is how I feel right now. This is the stand I'm taking. So anyway, continue. Okay, but nonetheless, you, you, you got a lot of things on your resume. You're, you're, you're the voice of, uh, uh, of soccer in America. Jake Simmons fill-in, you know. And, yeah, and, no, that's yeah, exactly yeah. where I'm going, actually. Okay, you, right, are, yeah. you are the understudy to, to Jake Simmons, yeah. the second-string uh, play-by-play announcer, I suppose, for the, the Portland Timbers. Uh, the, one of the games that you were lucky enough to call this year was, was a game in which Fernando Adi, uh, as he was getting ready to depart the club, scored a goal, uh, the winning goal in the 80-somethingth minute. I don't know. I was in the stands. I can't remember that stuff. Three nights ago? Uh, yeah. yeah, three nights ago. So, so I hope you remember it well. Uh, you know, in all of your time calling not only sort of games more broadly, but also Timbers games, because you've called an awful lot of those over the course of the years. Where does that moment rank? I mean, where where does that sort of slot in as a moment that you've experienced in the in the in the booth calling a Timbers game? So that was an interesting one. So the 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 backstory to this, the Timbers game Saturday, they pushed the kickoff later. ESPN could no longer air the game because they were locked into a slot between ICC games. So I was texting with with my buddy Pat Brown, who's the Timbers TV director, on Tuesday when this has happened. And he's like, it's a little bit crazy. Like, I'm gone. Jake's on his honeymoon. Keith Blyer, who had filled in, he's unavailable. Like, it's, we're sort of, and, I'm, and I sort of joke with him, like, I wonder how far down the list my name would be. And then long story short, I end up like, I was going to come with my wife anyway. And then it was like, do you want to call the game? I'm like, okay, sure. <laughs> so the day before, and we knew the Audi stuff was swirling. And this is one of those things where if I was getting paid by Fox, I'm going to come in, like, digging. Like, what is going on here? I'm getting paid by the Timber. is not really my role there. So I'm like, you, you know. But Gavin was at practice the day before, and I have a great relationship with him. And he was sort of like, I think you know why I'm here. I'm like, I think I do too, but I'm not going to, you know. And, and then after practice, he and Fernando were having a conversation at the far end of the field. I'm like, okay, I know where this is going. But we get to the stadium, and it's, you know, there's going to be an announcement close to kickoff. It's going to be his last game, but he is going to play, which is incredibly unique, by the way. I mean, that never happens where a player has agreed a deal to go somewhere else, is even on the verge of a deal somewhere else, and plays in that game. Very, very unique. But it was a very deliberate thing, and I ended up sort of in a conversation with Merritt Paulson and, and Chris Metz, who's the director of communications for the Timbers, of where was you know Merritt saying we he deserves, he has earned a send off here and a real opportunity. I'm like, okay, that's kind of cool. 
So, and I told Jamie we were waiting on her to break the story so we could talk about it on the air, and I'm furiously refreshing my Twitter feed before we're going to tape our open. Like, Jamie, let's go, let's go. We got it, like... Yeah. Same with us. We're going, when yeah. is she going to actually let's tweet go. this? And I know there were other people in the conversation who were like, okay, it's, he's not dying. He's, he's not retiring. He's being traded. Like, it, and, and I said in the post game. It, it, is, it is maybe not unique to Portland, but it's something special about Portland, that, that Timbers fans don't just show up at the stadium to root for their team. They, they develop an emotional attachment to their players. It's wonderful. It's part of what makes this city and the fan base so amazing. And so that's not something you would necessarily... Had he been being traded by the Columbus crew, I don't think you have that same sort of a thing. And then, yeah, he comes on... You know, if I... If, as I told Jamie as well, I was in no way prepared to return to call a game. Like the game kicks off, I'm like, my voice is not ready, my brain is not ready. So here we go. So had I been, you know, in a different scenario, I might have called it different. You know, thing. In the end, I just sort of kept it simple and stayed out of the way and just let the pictures and the and, and the pictures were amazing. And um, it was Jeff Curtin, who's the the who's the Trailblazers TV director. He was directing for us, um, and just let that speak for itself. But it was it, it was a unique thing in a player that, and I give credit to the Timbers organization, would not have happened in that way a couple of years ago necessarily, to have wanted to give him that sort of a, a of um a testimonial sorts of send-off, but also a player it's easy to forget, and I talked about some on air, uh, Kenny Cooper, who, by the way, is one of my best friends in soccer, so this is not a criticism of him, but Kenny Cooper in 2011, Chris Boyd in 2012, Ryan Johnson in 2013, that was a, something they were trying to figure out. And to get, who the heck is Fernando Audi? We, how many people mispronounce his name his first two months? How many people um, still mispronounce his name? <laughs> Others do. I will not throw them under the bus, Ross Smith, but others still struggle with his last name. <laughs> his last name? It's got three letters. Addy. Addy as opposed to Audi. Anyway. Um, you know, what, what an integral part of, you know, that, the, the MLS Cup winning team to, to be given that moment, but also to walk it off because I, I kept sort of teasing. Like, what if he comes off the bench? What if he scores a winning goal? By the way, you needed that win against Houston. You're not gonna, you can't drop points again. I mean, this is teams are closing you down. Um, so that, that was a really neat moment. Does it eclipse the Alan Gordon Chainsaw Massacre? Does it eclipse, um, the, at least for me, the Seattle 2009 Open Cup game? Does it eclipse Darlington's goal in 2011 uh, or that first home game with Chicago? No, but that's also my personal perspective, and I'm I'm becoming a bit of a hipster in that regard. Where I'm like, yeah, 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 whatever. Back in 2008, you know. <laughs> um, but it was it was pretty cool, and and that was neat to see. And and I think those types of things, it was it was fun for me to be in there for that moment. But it's also again, that's something that for a variety of reasons would not have happened too many other places. And and that was and it was neat for me to see the reaction from the people around MLS that I know sort of watching that going, okay, that was really cool. And that's something that Portland sort of projects to American soccer that few other cities and few other clubs do. Um, if anybody else has questions, go ahead and give me a signal now. We'll get you in the queue. John, I have a question from my own personal experience. I, I worked for Fox for two years, uh, ran their website. Sorry. Yeah, well, that's, that's what I wanted to ask you because you do know that Fox is a target. By a lot what? Of yeah, it is? I don't know if you're, what do you mean? Well, you said you're off. Everyone loves off, us. So I wanted to let you know. But um, come on, I definitely had to handle it while I was there. How do you deal with the criticism of Fox, and how do you separate that from the kind of day to day, not necessarily the work, but the environment? Because you do get to see the people there. You do know that they're not, you know, these crazy people that are they're made out to be. But you still hear the criticism from around the room. Yeah. How do you separate the two? Um, in a couple of different ways. I think Alexi Lawless as an individual is a good example. Alexi is a polarizing figure. He knows exactly what he is doing. He is a judo master on social media. He, 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 I, I, one of my great regrets is that we had switched our game assignments last September. I was not with him in Seattle when he went on his rant about the U.S., which ended up winning an, an Emmy, only because it would have been me trying to hold a straight face the whole time <laughs> um, as he's doing this thing. And instead, I was flying back from Atlanta, seeing social media go ballistic, and I'm texting uh, one of our producers, Ryan, who was living in Seattle, going, what did he say? What did he say? What did he say? Um, but Alexi couldn't be a better person, and he couldn't be a harder worker. He couldn't be a better teammate. He couldn't be more friendly to people who say nasty things to him or who say nice things to him. Um, and that's what you realize, that, that our group at Fox, so many of whom might be polarizing, 
we at Fox take pride in doing things a different way. Um, a lot of this is subjective. But you're not going to find people that care more deeply about soccer, about soccer in America, about American soccer, all three very different things, who are more willing to put more of themselves into whether it's a World Cup or MLS or Champions League or any of these things that we've done. So some of it I, some of it I get the criticism. Some of it in parts I, I don't disagree with. But, but what I also ha- have gotten to a point of, of just sort of resisting is but we try our hardest. We do our best. We care deeply about what we're doing. Not everyone's going to love it. Um, I like the ways in which we're willing to be different because let's be honest, there are other networks who would not have put a 32-year-old American in the chair that I got to be in. Um, so you, you can't throw the baby out completely with the bathwater of the risks they're willing to take, the ways in which they're willing to be different. We still need to be better in certain ways. We, we learned a lot from this World Cup experience. Um, that will be better for in Qatar and going forward. But there are so many of us, and it's a bummer to lose the Champions League because um, there's a lot of people that put a lot of themselves for years and years and years into the Champions League and the Europa League. And, and a lot of them are going to not have jobs maybe in a month or two. So that type of stuff is a real bummer for me. Um, but also some of it comes to the territory. I mean, the, the higher perch you're on, the more people try to knock you off. That's just the nature of it. But um, I know we all take great pride in what we do, and, and there does become a little bit of a chip on the shoulder defiance at times, particularly to a certain part of the American soccer chatter sphere. Um, that I, I, if we were not recording, I would go into a very different answer on that. But but you know, you're not there. There are certain people you're just not going to please. Um, there are certain people who have very specific and deliberate personal grievances against us that leverage that in their comments and, and that type of stuff you can't control. Um, but I know certainly our, our little strike team as well that does MLS every week that, that was traveling on a Russia, um, we take great pride in what we do and, and we will not, so, like criticism of, of what we can be better at, of course, but like people that just don't like us, think of not liking us, we have no time for that whatsoever because we know what we're doing, we know how hard we're, we're doing it, and, and we take great pride in every single week. Come, another question from audience. Yeah. Hi. So I really enjoyed hearing about your own preparation, and my question is about how you work with your commentating partner and how that influences your remarks on the game and the flow of the commentary. And a lot of it is, is just, as I've evolved as an announcer, understanding that better. And I've been very lucky that um, I think Stu was my 24th different analyst that I've worked with, going back to like Andy McNamara and Aaron Heinsohn and Lee Morrison and some of the guys I work with on Timbers broadcasts, and, and some for one or two games. Others like Alexi Lawless, Brian McBride, I've, I've had these wonderful runs with. Robbie Earl, who, um, you know, when, when Robbie sent me a text the day before the World Cup started, like, that's really impactful for me because he's not someone that just blows smoke. Um, and, and I've gotten better at that type of stuff, and I'm very lucky with Stu that we are such good friends. I'm a big believer in off-air chemistry producing on-air quality doesn't always going to be the case and there are times when i've not got not really connected well with with someone i've called a game with but we've produced good tv um but a lot of times it's nonverbal stuff you know when Stu's next to me i can tell in his body language when he wants to jump in and and i'll sort of give him a signal i just need two more words okay now all yours um we've really gotten where i know when to stay out of his way and when he wants to really take over he knows when to get out of my way and let me sort of take over other times where I've sort of sat there and just almost put a hand out like, hey, leave it alone. Let's just let this go, you know, and he's respectful of that. Um, that's been really fun and, and, and really learning how to tee him up the right way. A lot of it's just us having fun. I mean, you sometimes forget you're on TV. You sometimes it's just you and your buddy next to you watching the game. That's what really good sports TV is and can be as long as you don't go too far, which we have on occasion in MLS where we're just goofing around now. And Shaw has to get in there and you're like, hey, guys, you know, easy. Um, but that's a lot of what it is, just us enjoying it. And, and you know, my wife talks about a lot uh, when she could hear the smile on my face. That's when I'm at my best is when I'm enjoying myself and having fun. And, and I think that was one of the things we felt pride in. The feedback from people who said it sounded like you guys were having a really good time 
and your passion and enthusiasm for these games really shone through. And I was like, that's more so than any clever turn of phrase or rhetorical device or epic call. If we can get that across over the course of 17 games in 31 days, I consider that a job. Very well done. So we're about to wrap it up. We're at the hour mark. We're, I think all of us are going to be around for a while, hopefully talk to people. You guys can ask questions of the legend Chris Riffer over there. You guys can pepper. Wait, is it Riffer or Rifer? Have I, it is okay. Riffer. It used to be Rifer. I've been mispronouncing your name for years, Chris. Yeah, it used to be Rifer, and then he stopped doing this show. Okay. So he got demoted to Riffer. Uh, you can ask questions of future Pulitzer winner Jamie Goldberg, and uh, we'll all be around. But I wanted to give the last question to Jamie, and then also thank you, everybody, for coming out. Thank you, because I was sort of worried. Normally, I don't play to an audience, and I was... I show up for this, and there's like three people here, and two of them are just having a drink, and it's like, well, that's an ego come down. So I appreciate it. Thank you. Um, yeah, I think just before we go, um, to kind of look ahead, uh, there's a World Cup next year. Um, not not just in four years. For you, what are you most excited about um, looking ahead to the Women's World Cup? Well, specific to the Women's World Cup, I don't know if I'm actually going to be there because the, the, the problem is the Gold Cup is at the exact same time, and I have tended to lead our coverage of the men's national team, and JP has tended to lead our coverage of the women's national team. So I think there, and I think that whole sort of dynamic next summer is being worked through you know, because you that and this Copa America is a lot of things going on at the same time. So I don't know yet where I'm going to be, what my role is going to be. I sort of promised my wife a French vacation, and now it's like, all right, I'm going to be in Minneapolis for the Gold Cup. Whoops. Um, so we'll. Well, well yeah, that, no, she will. Don't worry about that. John, that's not going to be a good look if you don't get assigned to the Women's World Cup next summer. I, it, 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 because, and I will say, had the U.S. been at this World Cup, no brainer, but but the gold cup next year takes on a bit of a different dynamic because of the young guys. So we'll see. Are the men all of a sudden going to be a number one team in the world by then? Are the women going to be the number one team in the world next summer? Almost assuredly. I, <laughs> whether that means anything, I don't know. No. So I, I mean, I would hope to be. I'm just saying I, I don't know the answer to that question. Um, I so enjoyed our experience in Canada three years ago. It was actually one of the most memorable games that I've called was the Canada England quarterfinal. It was the end of three really busy weeks. Everything came together. Me and Danielle Slayton, who was my analyst there, who became really good friends, and we were just meshing by the end of it. Everyone was on the same page. Um, two of the three goal scorers, Jody Taylor, who I'd spent a bunch of time with that spring when she was in Portland, Christine Sinclair, one of my favorite athletes, full stop, uh, scored in that game, and it was like it was just this perfect... You know, it was a really cool. It was like everything came together, so that was really fun. So I would like to replicate that. I just don't know if I will. To your point, um, I got Seattle, Dallas in in ten, eleven days. I got Portland, Seattle at the end of the month. Although, so so interesting thing about this. So that day is the opening day of the Bundesliga season, and we have the Bundesliga weekend. So on the Sunday, the same day, we are putting it's Borussia Dortmund, Christian Pulisic, and RB Leipzig on the Fox Network. So normally when it's Bundesliga on the Fox Network, they want Stu and I on it. So the call came last week. Like, we really want you on that. I'm like, okay, but under no circumstances am I not calling a Portland-Seattle game. And I told one of my bosses, I get it. If this was a different MLS game, is it, you know, I, I did four years ago for NBC call two games in two different cities in the same day. It's not, it's not ideal. Um, those halcyon days when NBC cared about MLS soccer. It was good. But, but so point being, I was like, but you have to understand. I, I care very deeply about Portland, Seattle, so I'm not not doing that one. So either you guys are comfortable with this, or like you know we can sort of dig in here a little bit. And so suffice to say, I booked a flight earlier today. We'll do the Bundesliga game in LA. We'll sprint to LAX. We'll fly here. We land at like three thirty in the afternoon. Six thirty kickoff. We'll sprint in. It'll be fun. Um, listen, we got U.S. Brazil in September. Uh, U.S. men against Brazil is going to be a lot of fun in New York. we got a couple fun U.S. men's friendlies. We have MLS Cup this year. I'm looking forward to that so much. I love the MLS playoffs. I love the MLS fall. Um, I love getting to do MLS Cup. Uh, I will probably tomorrow be booking 36 hours after MLS Cup ends a flight with my wife and I and two of our best friends to Maui, and you can leave me alone. Um, so, but, you know, I was asked last year, we had done the Champions League final in Cardiff. We'd done U.S.-Mexico, which is like a bucket list thing at the Azteca. Um, remember when we thought the U.S. was going to be in the World Cup? That was fun. Um, we did Confederations Cup, Gold Cup, all these things. And I was asked 
but I was Jonathan Tannenwald. And he's like, is it going to be weird going back to MLS? I'm like, no, I love MLS. I love these. So I don't in any way, like we had a running joke about like France, Croatia to Portland, Houston, you know, last week, but it's, I love it all. And, and so there's no lack of effort. There's no lack of excitement. There's no lack of anything. Again, I've got, I want to, if I'm not good on MLS cup, if that's the way I end my year by being poor in that game, none of what I did in Russia is going to matter to me. Um, whatever happens next year, we've got the next world cup. I want to be at in four and a half years. The white whale on the horizon is 2026. Um, I got to hold off all these, these young punks coming out of Syracuse and like Columbia now coming for my job for the next eight years, you know, and I want to be a part, the same answer I would have had two months ago. I want to be a part of whatever MLS is going to become, whatever American soccer and soccer in America is going to become. I want to be a part of that. And I want to be a part of narrating that for a couple decades. Um, at the very, as, as I said, stay employed to send my kids through college and have some sort of retirement. So, those types of that nothing of that changes for the sake of doing the world cup but it is that sense of i've done that so now i i don't ever need to feel insecure again i don't need to feel nervous again and i also again don't need to pay any attention to someone chirping at me you're no good at your job because this and this it's like okay i that's not gonna worry me so that type of stuff is good but it's the i think one of you you might have used the phrase soccer nerd earlier um, we are deep, deep, deep soccer nerds, all of us that work in this. Um, and, and we have pride in that. And that doesn't change. And, um, you know, that will never dissipate or fall off. And, and so that's where, again, I enjoyed last night, sleep deprived as I was, doing my deep dive on FC Dallas, you know, and, and bringing my, my brain up to speed on their story ahead of the game next week with Seattle. So that type of stuff, um, that will never change, even for a, a life-changing and sort of one of the last boxes on my bucket list being checked experience uh, at the World Cup in Russia. Everybody, let's give a round of applause to John Thank you. Strong. Thank you. Let's Thank also you. give a round of applause to the Civic Tap Room and Spencer for hosting us on a week's notice. Everybody, have at least one more beer. Tip your bartender well. Jamie Goldberg, John Strong, thank you very much. And thank you all. Thank you very much for coming out. Thank you. Thank you.